1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws?
Everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and as is now the norm, I am with my good friend, Mr. Sean Whalen. Pleasure to be here. As always. And we are joined today by my two very good friends, Ruth and Darren Sutherland. How are you guys doing? Hello. I'm happy to be here. Uh, great to be with you again, Paul. Great to be with you, Sean, for the first time. This is great. It's, 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 I'm having a, I'm having a good time introducing Sean to all my podcasting friends. <laughs> it's fun for me too. It's great to have these conversations with, you know, different people and really for all of us to kind of explore. It's interesting how you can all be watching the same movie, but have very unique. I mean, there's four of us here and I know there's going to be unique elements to how all of us experience the same film. It's a great thing about this art form, isn't it? It, it really is. And, uh, we are continuing our look, which, well, I guess this would be the second part of our look at uh, 1970s disaster movies. And uh, if you're listening to this, I guess in the previous episode, you or in a previous episode, I don't know if they're all coming out consecutively, you would have heard Sean and I waxing poetic about the movie Airport, which kind of started the trend. And now we're doing the Poseidon Adventure, and we already have a recorded episode on the Towering Inferno. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know we're going to do Earthquake, and Sean and I have talked about doing possibly one mega episode about the three airplanes or airport, excuse me, sequels. Uh, and then I, you know, Sean, I just, I'm going to throw this out, out at your, <laughs> out of the clear blue sky, but I started having a thought about the disaster movie revivals of the late nineties, early two thousands, where mm. you had kind of Independence Day, you had, uh, what's the one, the, the volcano movie with Tommy Lee mm. Jones. Uh, I think there was another one similar to that with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, I think it was called Date, uh, Day, Daylight. Day Daylight, yeah, that was one of the, you know, so we did have a little bit of a renaissance of the uh, disaster movies late that I may want to take a look at some of those. Of oh, the I, three that we just mentioned, the only one I actually saw was Independence Day. It's interesting, Daylight, uh, you just threw out something that has a connection to the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> Go ahead, hit, hit me with it. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, the, the author wrote a sequel or started writing a sequel to the Poseidon Adventure called the Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. He died before he finished it. Someone else finished it for him. When they made a movie version of that, they basically threw out the book and did their own original movie. But then his original treatment for the sequel got adapted as Daylight. It's oh, like wow. somebody took that original story idea and turned it into the movie Daylight. Now, I have a vague memory, and I, we're obviously already going off course, but that's fine. Uh, I have a vague memory of a TV movie. Channel ABC used to show the movie of the week. I think it was on Tuesday nights. I think at one point they even expanded to Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Uh, but they had a TV movie called A Short Walk to Daylight. Oh, yeah. And if I remember the premise right, it was, you know, there was an earthquake in Manhattan, and there were people who were caught down in the subway and had to figure out a way to get out. 
I don't remember any more details than that. I could not tell you who was in it, uh, but I vaguely remember that movie. Oh, well, and I, I wonder I if the premise is similar. I can't believe, though, in your 70s disaster movies, you aren't doing Killdozer. <laughs> you know what? The, the funny thing is, Killdozer is kind of a favorite of mine based on the comic adaptation, which I think was in Worlds Unknown from by Marvel. That's where I was first introduced to that, and then I, because I had that, I had to see the movie on TV. Interesting. <laughs> I I know the movie well, and I have that comic. <laughs> I have the comic as well, still. Awesome. But we're talking about the Poseidon Adventure now, and I I you know I've already seen there's a trend in these disaster movies to have these star-studded cast, and I think this might be the best one of them all as far as that goes. Uh, and that's saying a lot when you consider, you know, Airport with Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin, and you have The Towering Inferno with Paul Newman and, and Steve McQueen. But this cast, just everybody in it fit the role, in my opinion, so yeah. well. They were yeah. all perfectly cast in this. And, and they were, while they may not be now, household names to everybody, they were true stars back then. I mean, they were, they were, Serious Academy Award winners in this cast. Right. It is an amazing cast. I agree. They're all perfect and they really make this movie. Yes. So as, as we usually do, we'll start off with uh, how we first saw this and I'll just throw out, I believe I saw, I know I saw this in the movie theater. I believe I saw it in the movie theater more than once. How about you guys? So for me, I will be right there with you, uh, Paul. I was trying to remember. It's, you know, I'm right around the age of where I started seeing movies in the theater in the early 70s. And uh, I'm wondering, because of this one coming out in late 72, running throughout the early 73, I'm trying, I was trying to remember, did I really see it then? But then uh, when I was reading about the movie, I saw it was re-released in theaters in 74. So I definitely saw it either in 73 or 74 in, in the theater. Uh, absolutely loved it. I remember being excited when it was going to be on TV for the first time. And it was one of those movies I watched, you know, every year when they would air it annually for a while. I think for me, I turned channels and passed by it when it was on television, but I never really sat down and watched it. So it was some years later at Darren's recommendation that we watched it together and certainly enjoyed it. All right. I'm shocked. I, so I was born in 71, so a year before this came out. So when 72 and this was in the theaters, I would have been too. If they took me to the theaters, I was the my, we were the family that everyone was glaring at because the baby was crying. But uh, <laughs> in reality, on this one, I'm surprised I didn't see it. It's somewhere along the t- along the way. I love seeing films. This one with the cast alone would have been a nice draw for me. It literally was two weeks ago I saw it for the first time, and I watched uh-huh. it again so that way. When we did this conversation, it wouldn't be just like my my review of it wouldn't be like new car smell. It would have been like, I've seen it again twice, and now I can like kind of really kind of explore this film. But um, I'm shocked I haven't seen this one, especially with, I mean, my gosh, who isn't in this film? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's what really struck me, and it's something we'll talk more about, was not only was it such a great cast, but the Poseidon itself was a character so, mm. um, with, with the way it was utilized in this. And it, it's really one of the pieces that I think was very unique to some of these disaster movies was 
they really did a great job of a sense of scale on this one. Oh, yeah. Yes. It's going to be an interesting piece of it. But seeing this fresh now, and that's that's where my comments are all going to be from, um, it, I was amazed at how well this holds up today to see this film. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that from someone seeing it for the first time here in just the last two weeks, because that's the way I feel about it. It's great to know someone seeing it fresh feels the same way. Yeah, my, my wife also had not seen this until I was doing a rewatch for tonight's purposes, and she also enjoyed it. I did have to warn her before we watched it. I said, it's a disaster movie. Be prepared for people to die. Because <laughs> that is one of the things, uh, you know, they they build up certain – in this movie in particular, they build up some characters to eventually kill them off and to make you feel your heart you know, breaking over the death of these people. Uh, and we, I'm kind of jumping ahead and giving people a preview as to some of my thoughts about the towering inferno. When we talked about that, it was interesting in that most of the characters who died kind of were presented as being somehow sinners or bad people or mm-hmm. something along mm-hmm. those lines. Most of them, not all of them. And certainly some of the sinning that was being done was, uh, you know, a little Puritan and, and overreacting, you know, that whatever, but, but they didn't present anybody and, you know, spoilers. If you haven't seen the Poseidon adventure, cause we are going to spoil, uh, there's characters in this movie who die and you don't, you just don't expect them to die. And there's characters in this movie who are beacons of hope who die. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, you know, and and it could, in theory, ruin the movie for you if, you know, if you're not prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, again, I, 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 I'm I not going to bury the lead on it. I love this movie. Uh, I, I have seen it many times over the years, and I have never once been uh, bored by it. And even knowing what happens to the characters, there were several points when I rewatched it where I got kind of goosebumps and I got a little choked up over people dying. Yep. And, and, you know, it, it's, I think it's, it's incredibly well done. I really, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. This is one of the few films I've seen where I had this sense that nobody is safe. And that's very rare in a film. Usually when somebody's got top billing or something like that, you're like, Oh, they're safe and protected. As this film progressed, the sense of danger increased. And as that started happening with certain characters, you're like, oh, my gosh, they spent so much time with that person, and that's what happened? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really something that was unique. I don't. Re- there's not many films that I can think of where that is the outcome of the movie. And I really felt all the way through this danger. And um, it, when you're talking about a disaster movie, that's like the whole point. <laughs> it's like you've got to really feel like this is a genuine disaster. And this it wasn't an issue of, you know, is everybody going to get out? It's is anybody going to get out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really liked that sense throughout this whole thing, um, which is hard to achieve. And well, I think they start off right off the bat. Well, not right off the bat. I mean, we're well into the movie before the, the, sh- the, the ship capsizes. But. When it does, and then they start to go, you know, Roddy McDowell as Acres is their guide, and they don't wait too long before they kill him off, really. Mm, yeah. And and I think that tells you right off the bat, no one is safe because not only 
is he a likable character, yes. but he also serves the plot purpose of bringing them through and knowing where everything is in the ship. Yes. And he's also got the bum leg already from being injured, and you're kind of feeling sorry for him all along. So then to, to kill him off, it's like, oh, how you know, why would you do that to poor right. Caesar? <laughs> you got me right there because I can remember as a kid, it's like the first time Roddy McDowell dies. I was like, oh, no, they killed Caesar. <laughs> but it's uh, it's the same thing uh, with me uh, because you're right. He is such a likable character. And um, and you almost it's like he's the person that lets them get started on this journey. And then, like you were saying, you expect he's going to be the guide, and that doesn't last very long at all. Yeah. Let's let's go right to the lead on this, Gene Hackman. Mm. I have always had a soft spot for Gene Hackman ever since as a young kid, and another movie we got to cover, Sean, ever since as a kid I saw The French Connection. Mm. Now, Gene Hackman was born – within months of the date my dad was born. And my dad was a cop, and Gene Hackman played a cop in The French Connection, and they had a similar hair hairline, uh, and a similar, a lot of ways, a similar way of talking about certain things. So Gene Hackman always really, really reminded me of my dad. So I've always had a soft spot for him. Now, he's an actor also that I don't think I ever saw him give a bad performance. I've seen him in bad movies. I've never seen him give a bad performance that I could see uh i i think he he's a tremendous actor uh and i think i think it was as this was being made that he won the uh, award the award for the french connection so now we have you know yet another oscar winner uh coming into this one uh he i thought he he stole the show because it's an ensemble cast but he just had you through the whole thing. His performance, I thought, was riveting. I thought his character was incredibly likable. Uh, he's he's the upstart priest. You know, he's the young buck who's who's not following the the rules the way they should be. Uh, and and just I I can't say enough good things. This, I think it's one of his best performance in what is essentially meant to be a popcorn movie. Yeah, I, I'll be right there with you on that, Paul. I mean, he is phenomenal in this, and his character is not at all what you would expect because it's, oh, okay, so they're going to have a, a, a preacher in here leading this group. You know, oh, isn't that symbolic? But at the same time, he's very much an, an anti-preacher as a preacher in some respects. Uh, and he just, you know, he carries this movie, but everyone is upset at him throughout this movie. It's like people are are second guessing throughout it whether or not they should be following him. And he keeps having to reconvince them. And, and sometimes it's simply not by choice that they want to follow him, but it's like they have no one else to follow sometimes. But he's so good in this. And it's, it's one of the reasons I was a big fan of him. You mentioned the French connection, uh, you know, this and my favorite Gene Hackman movie, which is the conversation. And, um, you know, just, you know, he was a, he was a big influence at that point in time, and he's he's really good in this, like you said. And not only does he have to reconvince people the whole way through the journey, but he's also the anti-guy before this. When yeah. he's talking to the older, more established priest, uh, Arthur O'Connell. Yeah. Uh, and and clearly they they're butting heads as to how you you know you're supposed to lead your flock and what you're supposed to do. He you know he's the upstart, and I think. If I if I'm not misremembering it, he's kind of being sent to some 
foreign mm. place to preach because they don't want him spreading his ideas in in the more mainstream places. Right. Uh, you know, so so he's he's the upstart from from the very very beginning. But right off the bat, they give not only do they let him be the upstart, but they give him another priest to be the upstart against. <laughs> So and, I, a, I think, and a very likable other priest too. I mean, the yeah. other priest is, um, you know, he's patient with him. It's they disagree, but they are cordial with each other. It's an interesting relationship they have. And Gene Hackman even tries to convince him to come with them. You know, he he really wants them to come with him. Now, I think one of the things that they did really well was, especially with the character of Gene Hackman, but I would say the whole cast. They're kind of like the archetypes, right, that you expect. Like, okay, we've kind of, like, balanced out this cast. You know, it's kind of like what you do for Gilligan's Island or something like that. We've got, like, this well-rounded uh, group of characters. But what they did is they never kept anybody surface level. Um, the, it was really critical before they started shaking things up. And this is something that Airport did really well, too, is giving you that time with them ahead of time to get to know who they are before they started doing that. But I also liked that the, his reverend character, I like that we really got to, you could like spend a whole episode just talking about his philosophies on religion. <laughs> and I thought that was yeah. a really cool part of the film where each of these characters had their own um, strengths and weaknesses and you got to know their flaws and, and really got to like delve into who they were as people. And I felt like we were hanging out with them as the movie progressed. Even when things started going haywire, I felt like we were continually getting to know these characters. And I, I think we're very used to the flash of of action movies and things like that and disaster movies nowadays where special effects and things kind of reign supreme. They didn't scrimp on practical effects in this film at all. I mean, mm-hmm. there is definitely a tour de force of, at, from 1972, I think the best you could possibly do with practical effects, but the performances were never lost in everything else that they were doing throughout this. And I felt like this movie really benefited from that. I actually, there wasn't a character that I didn't care about in some capacity. Even if I didn't like them, I, hmm. I, knew I didn't like them and I knew why. And I was in, that was a, an important part of the journey, I think. Well, let's hmm. see, who, who didn't you like? The purser. Yeah. <laughs> that <would've been> one. <laughs> right? Am I right? Yeah, that was a guy. Where are you <laughs> going? Wait here. <laughs> They're going to save us here. You're going to your death. It's the get the hell out of here, you. I'm pretty sure I'm climbing the Christmas tree. (laughs) You know, my problem is, and and I say this in total seriousness, my problem is I do respect authority almost too much. Hmm. And and I was, we like, it really came to a head for me uh, after 9-11. And I, you know, I remember hearing things and talking to people. And when they were saying, Stay where you are. It's going to be safe. I probably would have, which means mm-hmm. if I was in that building, I would have died. Mm-hmm. You know, right. so so that's that is you know be, being a being blindly accepting of authority is not a good thing. Wait, uh, wait, I'll actually save you here. So this is going to be us on the same boat, right? This is the debate you and I are having. All right, I get it, but that's the purser, that's a reverend, and that's a police officer. Which We're one am I listening to? Authority. They're all authorities. That's true. It probably depends on which one I talk to first. <laughs> but he was a detective, right, Rogo? Wasn't that? Yeah, he's yes. a detective. Yeah, in fact, his wife, Stella Stevens, 
was uh, somebody who he arrested for prostitution. Yeah. <laughs> Regularly to keep her off the streets. Yes. <laughs> now, it's a, but to come circle back to authority for just a minute, it's like, he's so good, but he's, he's so good in everything, but he has such a small part in this. Leslie Nielsen as the captain. I mean, there's your authority figure. And what's interesting is he's the authority figure who knows what the right thing is to do. And if he had done the right thing, they all, everyone on the ship would have been okay. Yeah, but true. his authority was compromised by the stupid, you know, head of the company that was along for the ride. So he had a plan for that. That was, I love what you're saying because I couldn't agree with you more. And I think one of the keys there was that he also had a plan for, Hey, if the captain's not going to play along, I'll just have you removed. And I think one of these guys can take over right now. And they, I guarantee you where they're at in their careers, they will do what I'm going to ask. Right. The worst thing about that situation is ever since, you know, the the late seventies into the eighties, I have a very, very hard time seeing Leslie Nielsen without thinking of his comic persona, which and it, it's really unfair because his comic persona was to play things very deadpan and straight. He didn't do pratfalls and different silly things. He was the straight guy who was just reacting to really, really silly things. But for some reason, I can't see him anymore without laughing somewhere inside of me. So. Well, the, uh... I'll say Leslie Nielsen won't fault you for that because he always wanted to do comedy. He was always frustrated. He got stuck in you know, dramas for 20, 25 years. So he'll, he's okay with that up in heaven. <laughs> so so I, w- I want to get back to what Sean was talking about with the uh, establishing the characters. Mm. And I do think they did a really good job of giving you everybody, whether they showed them at the dinner or whatever it was. But one of the things that comes to mind that they played up was they showed Gene Hackman, who was Reverend Scott. I couldn't remember his name. I just had to look. Uh, when they showed him giving his sermon, he basically, it, it's a kind of almost a Chekhov's gun because he's talking about God loves people who do for themselves. God doesn't want you to sit back and wait for things. You know, that's, you know, like that was the whole point of his sermon. So now this, the ship, capsizes and he's forced to put his money where his mouth is, you know, and to live the sermon that he just gave, despite the opposition from all of these different ends that are coming to him, you know, to do what he knows is the right thing, you know, in in his heart, he knows it's the right thing. And, you know, eventually, again, spoilers, eventually it costs him his life to save these people, which is to me the most shocking death in the movie. You know, they got to the end. Yeah. And then he dies. He's one door away. Yeah. Yeah. His heart was in it and just that heroic effort and to see see how that ends in tragedy. Mm-hmm. It, it's you know and again, all the other characters they give them their moment, you know, you get to see Carol Lindley pro, you know, preparing to sing for New Year's Eve and you get to see her relationship with her brother and you get to see Pamela Sue Martin and her little brother who is played by, I have no clue, Eric Shea, uh, you know, and you see their, their relationship and they, you know, he is a little bit of a stereotype, uh, character or a stock character, the young kid who knows everything about how the ship goes more than the adults do, you know, that thing. <laughs> but I don't know. It played okay in this, despite I- that. I agree. I appreciate that he was polite and respectful. And a lot of times they don't use kids that way. 
So I, I really appreciated, like, he was fascinated by the ship, and he was learning, and he was curious, and then he was able to communicate what he knew to the adults. So I was impressed. And even just that little scene at the beginning where they show, you know, he's he's out braving the storm so he can get up to the wheelhouse to learn some more. So they do a good job of establishing he really has spent his whole time on this ship learning all about it. So, and thank goodness because Akers dies. <laughs> But he, he's more believable in that role than the similar character in Airplane. Mm-hmm. Or, or excuse me, I keep saying Airplane. Airport. Airport. <laughs> the one who says, oh, I saw this constellation, so I know we turned around. Yeah, get out of here, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. It's that key scene, though, with the captain when he was in there, because you got to see that he was so interested in the boat that he was willing to brave, you know, that, terrible weather to get up there because the captain makes multiple references to the fact that what are you doing up here now with all this thing? <laughs> and I thought that was great. It also played out so well later when people like Rogo were giving him like a hard time. About You're going to listen to the kid. What? And, and that, I mean, I felt like I was like ready to start screaming at the screen because I'm like, you know, you don't understand this kid. No, I guarantee you this kid knows more than any of the rest of you here because of his obsession with the boat. Listen to the kid. <laughs> and Reverend Scott knew that and respected that. Yep. <laughs> so, that, you know, that was that was key. Um, you know, we, we see Shelley Winters and, and Jack Albertson. And I can't say it was shocking that they killed her but i think quite frankly this most recent time i've seen this movie and i've probably seen this movie a dozen times over the years but this most recent time that i watched it i felt the most emotion at her passing that i ever did it really like stuck me a little this time and you know i knew it was coming (laughs) it's not like it surprised me but when, when i was watching it with more of a critical view I could see how just how well done it was put together and how her character was so, you know, like you really rooted for her. And and she was trying to show, look, I can still do this. I, you know, here's my medal as a swimmer and all of that. And, and, and like, really, I think it was more that I was paying attention to it for, for uh, the purposes of the, of the show. Yeah. Yeah. What I really loved about her character is this, because at first I was like, oh, they're doing the stereotypical, she's overweight, she can't do anything because she's overweight, and I thought they were going to stay there with it. And what I really loved is that we hit that point, and, and we saw it multiple times, right? There was you know, the question whether or not she could get up the tree, and she needed help right. getting up the tree. Um, as we were climbing into spaces and things like that, you know, is she going to fit through the spaces? And I'm like, okay, this is going to be the running thing with her. I love that they hit that point where... She'd been through so much, been seen so much fear. She was ready to call it quits, you know, because she kept giving her jewelry mementos and things to her husband for the purpose of saying, you know, you carry this on. You make sure our grandkids get this and that. So, you know, she was ready to call it quits. When Gene Hackman gets caught underneath the part of the construction of the boat when he was trying to get to the engine, I love that she was the one who's like, okay, this is something I can do. I was a swimmer. And even before he went down there, she was trying to go first because she's like, do you know how long you can hold your breath? I know how long I can hold mine. Um, and I know how long it's going to take, you know, for you to be able to do that. You know, let me do this. This is something that's in my wheelhouse. 
and she proved it. He wouldn't have made it as far as he did if it wasn't for her. Yeah, and, and that was and part of it too. They they cracked out of the stereotype there with her. They yeah. didn't just leave her in that lane. They showed that everybody's multifaceted. Everybody has strengths. And I, I thought it was just because it's very real, right, that people step up in danger in the most surprising ways. And I love that we got to see that out of her character because I didn't see that part coming for as much as we talk about people dying and things like that. It was also surprising at certain points in time where you'd see a character step up in a situation where it was maybe not expected or it was it was leading you down a different path. Oh, it's such a good point, Sean, because you're right. Um, and like Paul was saying too, they, from the very beginning, they're establishing, you know, you expect she isn't going to make it because of, you know, there's going to be a point in time where she can't. And yet in the end, while she does die, she dies saving everyone else. You know, mm-hmm. that's not what you expected. So they, they did the unexpected with something you expected. That's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 yeah, it was like a kind of a double twist on that. Right. But, uh, and, and then, you know, they also used her a little bit, you know, for comic relief when they're climbing the tree and Gene Hackman has to goose her up. Uh, you know, I mean, it, there's, there's some moments in there that are, you know, it, it, to, you know, they give you just that little bit of levity to, to lighten the mood a little bit. Sure. Uh, who else in the cast should we talk about? Let's see. Red Buttons and Carol Lindley, a very mm. unlikely coupling, if you ask me, <laughs> and yet it really works. It does. And, and the key scene there for me is when she's done and he says, I'm not going unless you come with me. Mm-hmm. And then she finds the strength to go because she can't stand the thought that he's not going to survive. Right. Isn't that and nice? that's that's really you know some emotion there that that carries it through too. I mean, there's there's, there's so many little things like that that just I think are just woven together so well, and, and and it's I'm trying to think who who I think you know what I didn't even know off the top of my head who directed this. Uh, uh, Ronald is another one Alan? No, well he, he did some of the the action scenes. But, but that's it. Ronald Neem directed it, and he his key would have been more of what I'm talking about because I think what he did was he managed an ensemble cast. He gave everybody their moment to shine, and yet he still made Gene Hackman the star. Yeah, that's yeah. that's not a small task. Yeah. And it's uh, I know we sort of talked about their characters early or two, but it's it's interesting. I, I have to circle back to Ernest Borgnine in just a moment because like we were talking about expecting the unexpected because he's my favorite character. Ernest Borgnine uh, as Detective Rogo is my favorite because it's, he is, he's two sides of, you know, a, a coin at the same time. He's that rough, gruff cop you would expect on the outside. And on the inside, he's about as soft and squishy as you can get. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so it's just like uh you know, I just, I love, you know, he's fighting one minute with his wife, and you know the reason he's fighting is because he just feels so much love for her. Um, it's, again, just sort of not quite what you expect with his character, and I just, he's always been my favorite in the movie, and but in a movie filled with great characters. Agreed, he, and, he, and he comes off as very street, and, and, he, and he, you know, he's a good contrast to Reverend Scott. Uh, <laughs> You know, well, they butt heads, but they're both very heroic in how they handle things. They're both willing to take everything on their shoulders, and he's forced into the 
submissive role of following mm-hmm. him more because his wife makes him than any other reason. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to lose him when we lost Roddy McDowell's character of Acres. Mm-hmm. When he uh, dove in after him? Yeah, well, it wasn't, it was, it was that piece, yes. Um, but there were multiple times during that sequence because that sequence had like a real claustrophobic, mm-hmm. is somebody going to drown kind of thing? You know, we saw mm-hmm. what happened to Acres, but it was like as he started climbing back up the ladder, things kept getting worse. Yeah. So I thought, like, during, are we going to lose somebody else during the mm-hmm. climb? Because mm-hmm. we had in front of him Nani and uh, Martin. Um, yes. Redskins, and um, he kept coaching her to keep climbing. And I, w- I was pretty sure, I'm like, okay, these two are going to make, he's going to, you know, walk her through, they're going to make it. But I thought because he was behind them, and these, we kept getting these, like every level kept bursting through with water. I'm like, are we going to lose him during this? Mm. And it wasn't like I was 100% solid set that that was what was going to happen. It was more what I was talking about, that danger. It, it, whether or not something actually happened to them, I was actually feeling like each step has danger to it. Each phase, there's an increasing, it wasn't like this happened and then everything's calm for a bit. There was no calm for these people. <laughs> it just did not stop. And um, the, the sensation of every turn led to this other challenge that they were going to have to overcome. You could see why some of them were cracking along the way. And when when you eventually do see other people, you can see why Rogo's saying, well, you know, we should be going with them. Like, you know, at this point in time, why are we going off in our small little group? We should be going with the others here because... Like there's come, you know, there's safety in numbers typically, right? <laughs> this throws that right out the window. And it's another point where where Reverend Scott's faith in his own decision making is questioned. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where it's real easy for him to turn around and say, you know, okay, let's just follow them. But he has to, you know, God loves a doer. Uh, you know, that's that's his his mantra. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree so much with what you're saying there. And I'm just going to jump back for a second because we mentioned the uh, director, Ronald Neem. He's got a very long filmography starting in 1928 as a camera operator. Wow. Uh, his first directing credit is in 1947 in a movie called Take My Life. Then he's got quite a few movies over the years, uh, most of which I've never heard of. Right before this one, in 1970, so two years earlier, his, the movie he made last before this uh, was Scrooge with Albert Finney, which is oh, a yeah. favorite of mine. It is mine, too. And then he followed that up with The Odessa File, mm-hmm. uh, another, oh. another disaster movie, Meteor, mm. Hopscotch, First Monday in October. Hopscotch, too. Oh, I love Hopscotch, so, and I love so The Odessa he's, he's File. Got a, he's got a, a fairly respectable uh, resume. Yeah. And again, I think he did a really good job of balancing the characters and presenting them in a way uh, that, you know, let you breathe, but also get to know them and not get bored at all. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, again, it's a, no easy task because you could easily lose your audience while you're trying to introduce these characters before the action really starts. Mm-hmm. One of the things they did in this, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping back just a little bit off of this. That's okay. Really quick. Um when the event with the wave actually happened, and we didn't really talk about this, 
the clever job they did with camera angles there to make yeah. it seem like people were actually falling like large distances because of the scope and scale of that ballroom that they were mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Really huge. I mean, it built this nice sense of danger because not only were people falling, the piano, other large objects were falling around them, which is a real nice touch. Yeah. It just gave you this sense of, oh, wow, this is not going to go well. And um, sometimes you keep like everybody alive through that whole sequence. They far from did that. And right. even the main to the point of our first you know, glimpse into, hey, maybe some of this main cast isn't surviving this. That was that first sense because we had main people falling down, you know, uh, the Rosens both you know, went through and got separated during that whole sequence. Um, there were big things happening during all that, but I thought the use of camera angles was really terrific because there was nothing where I was ever like, wow, you know, there's some kind of background thing that isn't really happening that they're not really a part of. They're in the foreground, but the background isn't there. Mm -hmm. They did a really good job with cinematography of keeping this feeling like it was actually happening, which in the seventies with films like that, a lot of times the effects there's that, that, that scene that makes you go, Oh, this isn't going on right now. Or, and it takes you out of the, it takes you out of the film. It does. I, I don't, I can't, Think of a scene in this film where I felt like that, which says a lot for the time period. You're so right, Sean. That's the thing. I I think this movie stands the test of time more than any of those other 70s disaster movies for that very reason. I mean, the the practical effects that they do are done so well that they stand the test of time. Um, and, and the one you're just talking about is is an impressive one. I, Ruth had had read up on this part and was sharing with me that you know they built they built a um, a full-size replica of the Queen Mary's ballroom in sections that can be pivoted on a uh, forklift to create that effect. Um, and, and that's, you know, plus that's exciting to us. We sort of forgot to mention that, but Ruth and I lived in Southern California for a few years in the late nineties, early two thousands. And we were lucky. We, we've been on the Queen Mary a couple of times because of our love of this movie and uh, some of the episodes of, various shows in it, like the Night Stalker episode, the werewolf and stuff are on it. So it's neat. So we've been there and it, it's just amazing to get to see, you know, the, the actual Queen Mary used for all of those scenes before the uh, disaster. But yeah, they built that full size ball replica of it um, and pivoted it around. And it really gets, yeah. creates a believable sequence. That's frightening. Yeah. One, one of the moments that I thought really brought a, a, a brought across that scale that you're talking about. And it it had to be one of their key filming moments was when the person falls into that uh, skylight or chandelier or whatever it is. And it it comes straight down in the middle of it with his arms extended. I I think that's one of the things that just made you say, this stuff is really going down. Yeah. (laughs) This this is really scary now. (laughs) And and I don't know, I'm not expert enough to know the physics of how this kind of thing would work. Mm -hmm. But for somebody who is not expert on it, maybe Blaine Dowler would, uh, you know, would, would have some dispute with me. (laughs) Somebody who's not an expert on this stuff, it seemed very believable the way they presented the ship to overturning and the way they had, had the, uh, the smokestack blow the smoke, which would throw them off again, uh, and, and make the, the, the ship, you know, move more and, 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 you know, basically create the system or the, the situation that it was never going to be safe for them. And I thought that was all, 
at least for a lay person, very, very well put together and presented. Yeah. Again, somebody who knows more about such things than me might be able to say, oh, no, that's so silly. Another key point to that is it also goes to show that the level of gore does not necessarily equate to the mm. level of realism. Because, you know, we think about it, look, we're all the talking, we're talking about people being thrown around and, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't need to see, you know, people's broken limbs, lots of blood or things like that to feel this sense of these people are really in danger. They're going to lose their lives here. They did a very good job of it. Things were covered up by things that had crashed down on people, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't need to see a lot of blood all over the place mm-hmm. to appreciate the fact that this was, you mentioned scary before. I agree. I mean, there yeah. were moments in this run like, wow, this is a creepy movie. <laughs> and, and it didn't need all of that to give you that sense. It's all about storytelling and how you are leading people through that story with the, um, with the tools that you have at hand. And, uh, they captivated me with that. And that was, it was striking to me that I'm like, there's not a lot of blood, if any. There, I mean, there were certain sequences where there, I'm sure there was a little bit of it in there, but I don't remember that as being this proof, profound, like overwhelming sense of, you know, um, pain and torture that I'm seeing these people yeah. going through. They let your mind's eye go to those places. Right. Um, I think, I think you see some blood on Aker's leg when they Mm -hmm. show his leg. Uh, and that's, I'm trying to remember. And then I think, you know, the, when, in the aftermath of the capsizing, I think you see some people on the ground who were, you know, Mm -hmm. a little bloodied, but not, it's not overdone by any stretch. And I mean, there's a big difference between suspense, fear and gore. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yes. I'm not saying that that showing bloody people wouldn't have the right place in certain movies, but this movie did not need it. Right, and, and I agree with you, Sean, that they did a good job of of minimizing the blood and minimizing the gore, but continuing to have you have that you know edge of your seat uh, tension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the music in this movie. <laughs> And once again, (laughs) once again, I gotta, I gotta, I've gotta combine a little bit of my discussion of soundtrack and score, uh, because the soundtrack is basically the song The Morning After, which won the Academy Award that year. Uh, and I, I think it's a very catchy tune. I think it's fine. And I, I recently saw a criticism of it where it said something to the effect that the, the, the lyrics, are very down, uh, and, and that the music is very depressing and, and it, that it doesn't lend itself to the hope that you should be feeling if it's going to be the theme of the movie. And I disagree totally because mm-hmm. it starts off slow and whatever, but then you get to that point where she starts saying it's not too late for the living, whatever. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it, the music picks up there, the, 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 you know, her voice picks up and I think it, it is giving a message of hope there. And I think it's, it's a good song, which I understand was only written like two weeks before they started filming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think it was really, really good, but an interesting point to build off that is the score by John Williams, which is, I think, incredibly good. I think it's one of his best by far, mm-hmm. uh, without having, you know, the, the, you know, the, the repeatable theme of Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars or any of those things. But, you know, just just for mood setting purposes, I think it's one of his best scores by far. But he only plays that theme, the morning after theme, into it very, very little. 
it's it's not a, a repeating theme throughout the whole movie, which you would think it you know it's something it would be natural for him to do that, but he went his own way on it, and I think he did a great great job with it. And there's you know there's points where where it builds up when you know when the tense scenes and the, the 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 orchestra just keeps building and building and building as you're watching it, and it just adds to the tension so well. And then there's you know points when you relieve that tension, and I you know I mean John Williams, what more could you say? I think the guy's pretty good. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up the music. It was on my list. I wanted to talk about it so much. I mean, it's I grew up on all of those Irwin Allen TV shows of the 1960s. So it was it was always exciting to me that you know John Williams was the guy that did the music for all of those Irwin Allen TV shows like Lost in Space and, and Land of the Giants and stuff like that. That went on to become the John Williams we all know and love. And I I just love you know you're still getting this work here between. Erwin Allen and John Williams, and it is such a wonderful score. But on top of that, I have to throw in a more science fiction connection besides John Williams and Erwin Allen. You get the orchestration for the music is by Alexander Courage, who also worked with Erwin Allen on TV shows like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and wrote the theme to the original Star Trek. So, you know, what an he'll, amazing couple of guys. He only wrote the music. He only yeah. wrote the music. <laughs> You know, we had to get those those uh, those lyrics. <laughs> so oh, that yeah, he, that's right. He only wrote the music. He he never wanted the lyrics. <laughs> but it's just uh, it's wonderful to see both of those guys that Irwin Allen went to so much in the '60s working together on the soundtrack for this movie. That was you know such a big movie for Irwin Allen too. Any any? Do you have any idea how much money the movie made? I know it was like the number one movie the year it came out or something like that. Um, I don't remember how much it made, though. Well, the budget for the movie, and this is based on the, uh, you know, the presenter of all facts that you can rely on, Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> the budget for the movie was $4.7 million, which was probably mm. pretty expensive at the time. <clears throat> the box office for it is... One hundred and twenty-five million. Wow. I would say by any stretch of the imagination, when you when you make that many times your your budget, it's a hit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's uh, yeah. Just think about you know adjusted for inflation, uh, what that would be, pretty huge. But yeah, that's I, I hadn't looked up what it was. I do remember you know, the, you know what an amazing hit it was. I think a bigger hit than they ever expected uh, for the year. But that's great to hear just how profitable it was. Yeah, apparently, just as, as an aside, because it came up before, and I just want to, uh, both in this movie and in The Towering Inferno, apparently, Erwin Allen directed certain action sequences, but was mm-hmm. not the overall director of the movie. Yeah, that's really good. Like, you're right. Good, a good, they needed a good actor-director as well. That was a valid point, yeah. So, uh, who else can we mention here? I did, we didn't mention really Pamela Sue Martin to speak of. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I not too long ago did a rewatch of Dynasty, so we are Pamela Sue Martin fans. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she, she was, you know, she was better than she had a right to be with the way her part was because I thought she did a really great job of conveying how she fell in platonic love with Reverend Scott. Mm-hmm. It's you know, um, and when he died, her reaction to it yeah. really came through. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, her reaction to that scene is her standout performance. And you're right, she does. She's really serviceable, which 
what she's given, she probably has the slightest part of any of the main cast. You know, it's like there's there's less character development with her, I think, than probably any of the others, uh, including her younger brother. Robin uh, has more character development, I think, than she does. But she does a really good job with it. And I was always a fan of her because of Nancy Drew. And I know you were, too. Mm-hmm. The scene where um, he died, she really added something. Oh, yeah. I think um, at that point in time, what you really needed is the sense out of that crew, because Rogo, I think, was uh, Ernest Borgnine did, you know, is always such a great job in, like, capturing and captivating the screen, right? You really needed the rest of the people to convince you that there is a loyal contingent to the Reverend. And I thought, like, her reaction was showing, you're right, the platonic love, but also that there was an immense loyalty there and this belief that, like, now that this guy is gone, we're in trouble. (laughs) We're following him and we're all scared and he's taking us somewhere. Where do we go now? And they were stuck almost after he was gone. That's why everyone was looking to Rogo. And you needed that moment to, like, really understand that, whoa, this him leaving is paralyzing almost for this group. And then that was a moment where it allowed red buttons to step up again and do the, come on, Rocco, you, you know, he, he, he brought us this far. You got to do the rest and whatever. And he got to give his little moment in the sun there and, and, and to inspire Rogo to bring them forward. Uh, you know, and, and again, you, you know, you mentioned Ernest Borgnine. He also did a real good job of reacting when Stella Stevens got. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I know I'm playing my hand too early, but I, I can't come up with flaws with this movie. Yeah. I quite, quite frankly can't. Like, Cause you know, when we do this, I usually want to say, well, these are the things I liked. These are the things where it could have been better. I don't know that there's any part in this movie that I, that I think could have been better. Yeah. 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 So many great performances and just so much variety, even with all of the dangers that they encountered from fire to water to steam. Uh, just so many things along the way, just action-packed, plus so many great characters. Yeah, I mean, this movie, it's, it's we were just talking about the Stella Stevens death scene. I mean, it's you're right. I mean, that's probably the most sort of shocking, surprising one, because it really comes out of nowhere. You know, it's just her death scene is just like sudden, and it's like it, it happens, and you're like, wait, did that just happen? <laughs> uh, but... Um, but yeah, that's another reason I like this movie so much, and I think it's maybe a bit different than the typical disaster movie. I watch, I watch this movie, and it's, yes, it's definitely a disaster movie, but it's also sort of a, a journey movie. Like, you could almost compare this movie to, you know, um, the Lord of the Rings with Frodo and Sam crossing the Omen Will. I mean, that's basically, this movie is about them journeying to safety across all of these trials. And, oh, uh, yeah, it's it's much more complex than the typical disaster movie that way. I never would have thought of that comparison that you just made, and that's, I think that's horrendous. I think that, you know, you really hit on something there, the whole journey from the beginning to end. It's also, it's an hour and 57 minutes. I don't know, like, I would have loved, I'd love to see what, like, this looked like edited for TV, you know, because they, that happened so often, right, where they'd release these as TV, and I'm sure there was a version of it that was edited for TV. What do you take out? Because yeah. um, I, I think if you take out anything from this, you lose something, because mm-hmm. I can't think of a scene from this that you could remove and have the same movie. 
Yeah. If you're showing this on broadcast television, it should be a three-hour presentation so you don't have to cut anything out of it. Right. And maybe and, it was. I mean, maybe that was, you know, they did a two-nighter with it or something like that. I don't know how you – I don't know how you would edit this. Um, it's a, That's a really good point, Sean. I wish I could remember. This movie was like, you know, The Wizard of Oz in the 1970s. It was on every year. So there there would be a big, uh, you know, showing of Poseidon Adventure. But – I wish I could remember for sure, but you saying that makes me think, you know, I bet it was always the Sunday night movie when you have the extra broadcast hour. They probably did show this in a two and a half or a three hour block. Uh, and it was, this was the movie, you know, I watched it every year when it was on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I've ever turned on the TV, saw this was on and changed the channel. I don't, I don't <laughs> no. think that's ever happened. Ever. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're there. <laughs> Do I have to tell you what my rating is? <laughs> no. I think I, think I made it clear throughout this whole thing. For me, this movie is Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. This movie is absolutely Jaws to me, too, Paul. It's like when you uh, when you just uh, threw this title out there, I can remember my excitement at, oh, my gosh, you haven't covered this? Yes, I definitely want to. This is this is a all-time favorite of mine. Definitely Jaws. Yeah. No doubt, no hesitation for me. It's Jaws. So the surprising part is it's it's so easily Jaws, and I watched this in 2023. Um, I don't have any nostalgia to it. Uh, I I never got to see this. I don't know I don't know how I missed this, but I had never seen it before. And oh my gosh, you know I saw it, I watched it twice in preparation for this, mainly just because I wanted to see how did I feel the second time through. I felt the same way. Oh my gosh, was it fascinating. <laughs> And in 2023, to be able to say that about a 1972 movie, um, it's an easy Jaws. It's an easy wreck. If you're listening to this and you did not watch this, yeah, we were spoilery, but, I mean, we're talking about this two-hour monster of a movie. There's so much we couldn't cover in this. Go see this. And if you haven't seen it in a while, watch it. One of the criteria for a Jaws rating for me one of them, it doesn't, you know, it's not, you know, there's always going to fluctuate between them. But one of the things I think about is, you know, does it stand up to repeated viewings? Mm-hmm. Now, there are some movies that that are too hard to watch a second time, but are still mm-hmm. great, great movies. And, and you'd give them a Jaws rating. This mm-hmm. one, I'm giving a Jaws rating. And one of the reasons is rewatchability, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I know each character that's going to live and each character that's going to die. And I know when they're going to die. And it doesn't matter. I can just still watch it over and over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no doubt. No, you know, to me, like you said, it's an easy choice. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, if if I'm making my top movies of all time list, this is somewhere on that list. I don't know mm-hmm. where it falls, but it's somewhere that on it. It's uh, a so I, plus. It's a Jaws plus. <laughs> I don't know that I like it more than Jaws. I was going to say, I think Paul would well, disagree. I meant, high I meant high Jaws. You know, it's a... Yeah. Well, again, I, I have racked my brain to try and say, okay, they could have done this better. And I can't come up with anything. Right. No, I agree. So that's going to do it for uh, the Poseidon Adventure. And obviously, we're going to move on to more disaster movies. I'm going to give you a quick just uh, – my wife and I just got back from vacation. We were away last week, and uh, we were flying back. And I have some movies on my iPad that I watch on the plane. So as we were going over, I watched uh, Quantumania. Hmm. And when we were coming back, I said, well, what am I going to watch? And I'm looking. I got all these movies on there. And without even thinking about it, now I'm on, I'm on a plane. 
And without even thinking about it, knowing that Sean and I are going to talk about it, I put on Air, Airport 1975. <laughs> and just about the time when the plane gets hit with its disaster, I said, what the hell am I doing watching this while I'm on a plane? And I actually turned it off and put on something else. I thought you were going to tell me you got up and said, have any of you seen this? It's wonderful. <laughs> so, But that's one we're going to get to eventually. But in the meanwhile, thanks, Ruth and Darren, for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you guys. Thanks for being here. fun. Thank yeah, you. What I like to do, as you're well aware, is before we sign off, let everybody know where they can find you guys on other things. Uh, please look for Rad Adventures Network, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, not as active as we used to be because my work schedule is has been a bit unbelievable of late, but please stop by, check us out, and um, know that we'll be coming back soon. All right, yeah, and uh, yeah, as far as that goes, thank you guys for coming on because I do know your schedule has been crazy and it's been tough to try and find the time where we could do this, so I really uh, do appreciate it. That's just great fun, yeah, always. Glad it worked out. And in the meanwhile, goodbye, everybody, and we'll see you in two weeks. We didn't ask you to fight for us, but damn it, don't fight against us. Leave us alone! How many more sacrifices? How much more blood? How many more lives? Bell wasn't enough! Acres wasn't! You can make it! Keep going!